Well, good morning. I'm really glad the snow is starting to melt. Um, I was out Wednesday pushing snow for the city, and it was extremely cold, even with the heat blasting in my little tool cat. And I love snow, but I, that was at that point I was like, please, just God, get rid of the snow. Um, and so today's supposed to be kind of a warm day. I'm really excited about snow melting, so I don't mean to be a kind of a, a Scrooge, but I'm really excited. Um, <clears throat> last Sunday, we had the Billings over for, for dinner, and it was kind of snowing a little bit outside, and we were watching the Charlie Brown Christmas. And Grace is like a huge like enthusiast for Christmas, everything Christmas. Right now, it's a guarantee that our default CD is Fernando Ortega's Christmas music. And uh, it was playing this morning, and earlier this week, we popped in It's a Wonderful Life and watched that. And so this is the third week of Advent um, of the holiday season, and so I just want to wish everybody a Merry Christmas. Um, with that being said, I do have a question for you guys. And for the individuals, would you consider yourself a good gift giver? And while you ponder that, let me turn to my text. Are you a good gift giver? And let me ask you another question. Would others consider you a good gift giver? This is an important question, and it's, it's kind of um, a question that will reflect back on the application. Um, I myself consider my, and I'm not boasting here, guys, I would consider myself a good gift giver, all right? And I have a story about that. Um, I tend to take notes when people express certain needs. Um, I tend to take little, little verbal notes in my head and say, hmm, that person has said that they like this, and so I'm going to think about it. For instance, Mike, I'm sorry, I'm going to use you an example. We got married just a month ago. And if you know Mike, and he mentioned in the meeting, he loves to read. But if you borrow books from Mike, sorry, Mike, I'm not trying to embarrass you. Sometimes his name's written in them, sometimes they're not. And he, and he, he admits this, and so when I borrow a book from him, excuse me, um, he'll, he'll ask me, hey, Steve, you know, is my name written in it? No, it's not. Okay, could you write or whatever? So, that being said, I got him when he conducted our wedding, I got him a seal. It basically, it, it's, it's a stamp that's not inked, it's a seal, and it's, it clasps down on the book, and it says, from the library of Michael Hampton. So now you guys can know, if you ever borrow a book from him and you see that seal, you can say, Steve Green, the good gift giver, gave that to Mike Hampton. <clears throat> I, I love giving gifts, that's part of my nature, I love giving good gifts. I get excited when people need something, you know, and they start thinking about um, gifts I can get for them. And so I would consider myself a good gift giver. My uncle Jim, he lives in Las Cruces. He was back for the wedding. He's a great gift giver as well. I can remember growing up and it would be right after Thanksgiving and Kristen and I, my sister that's here, we'd start looking out at the window. We'd hear UPS trucks driving down the street and we'd kind of peek out the window. We're like, is, is it uncle Jim's presence? Because he, he traveled a lot and all of his gifts would come from all the different countries that he traveled to. And so when we'd open them, it was like the coolest stuff, you know, it would be like chocolates from Europe or puzzles from China or whatever. And he's just a great gift giver. And so I ask you that question. Um, in preparation for this sermon, I actually read a, a little analogy. Um, American Express asked, what is the worst gift that a person could receive? And Mike, I'm sorry. And Kathy, I'm sorry. I know you love fruitcake. That was the answer. Fruitcake at 31%. It actually beat out not receiving a gift at all which is ironic. That's how much people deplore fruitcakes. We all love good gifts. Good gifts mean um, they're thoughtful. Um, people feel blessed by them. That means that when we get a good gift, we think, man, they really care about us. And so today, I, I ask you that question as we look at the story of 
um, the gifts from the Magi in Matthew 2. Um, so, that being said, are you a good gift giver? And if you're not, would you like to become one? Bow your heads and pray with me. Father God, we just thank you for this day. Lord, the third season of Advent, all of our thoughts right now are on family, um, on the holiday, the upcoming holiday season. Father, we just got done with a great meeting. And Lord, all those thoughts and all those feelings of being blessed, we just want now to continue into um, worship in this message today. Father, let us know what it means to be a great gift giver. You gave us your son, and we are truly thankful for that. Father, would you come down and put your spirit on us. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we will be, if you want to now, to turn to Matthew um, 2, 1 through 11, um, is where we'll be parked today. And if you don't have your Bibles, I would, and you're a member of this church, I would just con- compel you to make sure you are bringing your Bibles. Um, it's something that I get on the youth group kids that I can see up there. Most of them don't have their Bibles. You can tell it's working a lot, but... Just bring your Bibles. It really helps for the discussion if you have that, especially when you do exegetical-style preaching. Um, now, one thing, as a Bible studies major um, and going off to seminary, one thing I love is biblical studies. And so there's, there's, in that, we have to ask ourselves certain questions about books and about Scripture and whatnot. And so one thing we need to ask ourselves here is about the Gospel of Matthew specifically. A lot of times in our, in our Bibles that we have, they always have an introduction. And in the introduction, it'll kind of say the time and the place of where the, the, the story was written, but also why. And, and Matthew is, is one of the four Gospels, and the four Gospels represent the four testaments of Jesus Christ. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, what's important to know is that each testimony is, is emphasizing something different about the life of Christ, Right? For instance, like in the Gospel of Luke, he starts out writing um, to the, his dear friend Theophilus to give an accurate account of all, the, all that has happened for Jesus Christ. And so it's a very distinct and specific reason of why it's being written. And also in the, in the case of Matthew too, there is this overarching theme or themes that are revealed, not only just telling the story of, of, of Jesus Christ, but also who he was writing it to and for what reasons. If, you, if, you've, if you've read much about it, you know that Matthew is typically considered to be very Jewish in flavor. It's, most people think that it was written to a Jewish audience. And we know that because G, or Matthew does such an exhaustive job of showing how Jesus Christ fulfilled all Old Testament prophecies. He's very laborious in that. And so when we see it, he'll, he'll, Jesus does something and he says this to satisfy this prophecy which said this. You see that in Matthew. Another thing that you see in the very beginning in chapter 1, um, which is, wasn't uncommon, but for Matthew, I think he was intentional about it. He establishes the, the lineage from Jesus Christ back to David and all the way to Abraham. And that's to show the direct connection of Christ to Abraham of being um, from that line. That's important to know that, that it has a Jewish flavor to it because the story is about wise men or magi that are considered pagan or Gentiles, and so we'll just we'll start there and just have that in the back burner that this is written to a Jewish audience because it really reveals some of the caveats about Scripture. And if we if we're not careful, we'll, we'll, and we don't ask good questions, we'll just kind of skim over that stuff, and we'll really miss some significant um, things that that the author was trying to say and that God is trying to tell us. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through the whole story, um, and then I'm going to go ahead and just kind of break it down verse by verse. 
and then I'll, I'll try to pull the application of what it is to be a good gift giver from that. It says in verse 1, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we, st- we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, and by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for who, from, from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw a child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. So we have the, 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 we have the kind of the setting and the tone. We have the stage. All right, we've read kind of what we're going to be looking at today. The first thing when we read this text, we want to ask ourselves two questions. Right off the bat, when we read scripture, to ask ourselves questions. And in this verse, very first verse, it's this. Who is King Herod and who are the wise men? Who are these people? Where did they come from? What, what do we know? What does history say about them? What does scripture say about them? Um, and what were they doing specifically? First, King Herod. King Herod was also being referred to as, this is King Herod the Great. He wasn't the only King Herod. There was also Herod Agrippa. And um, King Herod the Great was, was the beginning one. And his, his, his dynasty was right before Jesus. And towards the end of, of uh, the beginning of Jesus' life was towards the end of King Herod or Herod the Great's um, life. There are certain things that Herod the Great was known for. And there are two things specifically. One, his, his deep desire to appease Rome in which he did so through building structures. He built things like, um, I don't know if anybody else has been to Israel. I have. One of the, first pl- the first place we visited when I was in Israel was Caesarea. Caesarea is along the north shore of the Mediterranean, or not north shore of the Mediterranean, but on the north coast of Israel. And along the Mediterranean Sea, there's a place called Caesarea. That, that It was named Caesarea in honor of Caesars, or, or Caesar or the Caesars, to kind of make them blush or make them boast of finding this magnificent city that was built on the sea. Everything was completely manufactured. Everything from how they brought water in to uh, the, uh, the auditorium or the, the, the theater to an actual harbor that they had artificially built because this place didn't have natural, a natural harbor that they actually constructed from, from manpower. It was a great accomplishment. And it was done not only to boast Herod's name, but also kind of appease Rome and make him look like a really good king. The other thing um, he built was also, he was known for his Masada. I don't know if anybody else knows exactly the story of Masada. We visited there as well. It's along the Dead Sea. And essentially, as you're driving on the road, you see this, what looks to be a mountain that has been leveled. And on top of this mountain is a fortress. It's amazing because the only way you can get up to this fortress is through a very, very narrow, steep climb. And we actually took, uh, I can't remember what it's called, but we, 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 it's the lines that kind of string you out in the car and then you get off. And I can't remember what that's called. Cable car. Thank you. Appreciate it. I was struggling. We took that up there. It's great. And he used that basically as kind of if there was a, a revolt or there was, they were trying to overthrow him, it's somewhere he could flee to and be well protected. So he was known for a very accomplished builder. 
The other thing that he was known for as well was being brutally ruthless. He killed a lot of people. He commissioned a lot of deaths. And in fact, he commissioned so many that a lot of people, this is just a little afterthought, a lot of people say, well, you know, when, when Herod talks about killing all the, the firstborns in Bethlehem, it never happened because it's not recorded. Well, he was such a violent ruler that that was nothing out of the norm. It was just kind of a blip on the radar of his whole ruthless life. In fact, here's just among some of the other atrocities Herod committed. He also killed a wife, a wife, not just his wife, one wife. He had many wives, one which he killed, and then also her two brothers. He killed a mother-in-law, his three sons, and an uncle. So history paints Herod as a very arrogant and ruthless king. And so when the wise men come from the east and they ask him this question, where have the king of the Jews or where has the king of the Jews been born? We sense a bit of irony in the text. King Herod is seen as a puppet or illegitimate king compared to the real king who has been born in Bethlehem. Now the wise men have been the focal point of many legends and many speculation. For instance, if you guys read when we read the text, you may have noticed that the number three didn't come up. That's interesting because most of us assume we think of wise men that came and visited Jesus. We, we think of three guys, but the text never says that. It never says that they were kings either. In fact, the text isn't really specific about these wise men per se, other than the, the, that they were, the better term is not kings or wise men, but probably magi. Uh, Old Testament talks about these guys. History talks a lot about them. More than likely, these men, when they say from the east, were probably coming from around the area of Iraq and Iran, current day Iraq and Iran. They were known for their abilities to read the stars. They would know the stars like I would know the roads of Topeka. That was their that was their gift. They were able to look at the stars, and what they would you know what they would do quote unquote would predict the future or see see events that were occurring, and they would they would uh, they would make plans accordingly. They were also considered famous, and so people would come and have them read the stars and and look for events and and the future and whatnot as well. So when we talk about them being great um, astrologists and practicing divination and predicting future events, um, it says in verse 2, Where is he who has been born the king of Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. That's making that connection with the Magi and, and looking at the stars and seeing that an event had occurred. Now, I actually believe that this was a real physical event in, in history, in natural history. I think God's sovereignty and God's providence had provided a time when Christ was going to be born in which this event had happened, and they saw that. Some people say it's a comet. Some people say it was a, a certain star. And I think there's good proof from apologetics that say that this was an actual star that happened in, in real history. I think they saw something that pointed them to Jerusalem. But for time, we can't really speculate too much. But it says in verse 3 this. It says, Upon this request from the Magi, and that's what I'm going to refer to them here as, as Magi, um, upon that request, Herod and the city of Jerusalem with him were troubled. Probably for two reasons. First, for, for Herod, he knew what the Magi, what their gifts were, and that stars and, and stars rising and, and setting in certain ways were indications of the demise of, of kingdoms. And so for him, he probably saw the writing on the wall. This is, this is it for me. There, there's something going on. There's something brewing. Troubling's brewing. But the second thing is connected with Jerusalem. See, Jerusalem was troubled as well. And that was probably because the size of, of the, the entourage that the Magi were traveling with. John MacArthur actually has this to say um, about the Magi. It says, When the Magi arrived in Jerusalem, asking for the whereabouts of the new king that had been born, Herod got panicky. Knowing that these Persian kingmakers had come to find their king, they were no, da- no doubt traveling in full force with all their oriental pomp, 
wearing conical hats and riding Persian steeds rather than camels. And accompanying them, historians estimate, there were a thousand mounted Persian cavalrymen. When they came charging into the city of Jerusalem and Herod peeked out his little palace window, he must have flipped. Not only was their unexpected presence unnerving, but to make matters worse for Herod, his army was out of the country on a mission. That's why the Bible says that Herod was troubled, emphasis on the troubled. The Greek word conveys the idea that he was agitating like a washing machine, literally shaking. That makes sense. You see a large amount of people, the writing's on the wall, you become troubled. He becomes so troubled that he actually assembles all of his, his scribes and teachers and chief priests, and it says in verse 4, and assembling all the chief, chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them um, where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now when I read this text, I thought it was a bit, bit ironic. To me, it seems like you have, you have Herod, who says he's the king of the Jews, asking a question that to me sounded like if I was a Christian, I said I was a Christian and said, why do we celebrate Easter? See, in this time period, the Israelites had put all their hope in the future Messiah and, and, and hoping and praying and wondering when he would come. And this is such a basic fact for a lot of them. For him to ask this question really emphasizes how much of a marginal or nominal, excuse me, nominal Jew that, that Herod really was. But they respond um, by quoting Micah 5.2, which says, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from, um, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This points to the specific birthplace as Bethlehem being where Christ, where the Savior, was going to be born. In verse 7 it says, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. We find out later that this was a complete lie, in the sense that Herod had no, no intention of worshiping this, this would-be or, or, or king of the Jews, right? He had no intent, and, and I won't cover this, but he actually the, he called his, his soldiers to go into the city of Bethlehem and kill all newborns up to the age of two. And so he, he, he was being sneaky. He wanted basically the Magi to kind of do his... His, his, not his dirty work, but to go and do the grunt work of finding the, the, the boy and then let him know so that he can go and, and he can um, get rid of his, his basic threat to the throne. In verse 9 it says, After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it arose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw, they saw the child with Mary his mother, they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. The Magi arrive in the beginning of chapter 2 because of the star that is written. Now I think this is very different than the other star that we, we talked about um, that they saw that kind of indicated that, that a Savior had been born in, in Jerusalem or a king had been born in Jerusalem. I believe that this was a supernatural event. It was a phenomenon that God had provided to actually lead them to the place because it says that, that it actually rested over the place that Jesus was at, that he, that he was staying at. So I really think that this was, a, this was a supernatural event that God had caused to guide the, the Magi to the exact place where Jesus was at. And then after that we see they begin to shower, shower uh, Jesus with good gifts. It says they rejoice with great joy and worship and begin showering Jesus with gifts of myrrh, frankincense, and gold. 
There, there are different thoughts on what the, what the gifts actually represented. Um, personally, I think this. I think the, the, the gifts were actually providential, and th- there was a meaning behind the gifts themselves. What I mean by is this. I think those gifts, you have first gold. I think gold, gold is expensive today as it was then, and gold was a typical sign of kingship or royalty. And so it was recognizing the fact that Jesus Christ will future be, in the future will be called king. They also gave him the gifts of frankincense. Um, I, love, I, I personally love the smell, and when I think when I went to Israel, I bought a whole bunch of frankincense, um, little incense or whatever, because it's a very, very pungent, aromic smell. And it's also used um, in a lot of priestly duties back then, um, and usually sat burning along the side of an altar, kind of filling the room up with this pungent fragrance. And so the frankincense represents Jesus Christ as the head priest or the chief priest overall. We find that being said in the book of Hebrews especially. And then also finally you have him given, sense of, uh, given a gift of myrrh. Now this was an odd gift to give to a, a child or a baby because myrrh was typically an embalming fluid or a type of preservative during the embalming process back then. But I think not only was it expensive and, and, and so they were worshiping God through it or worshiping Jesus through it, but that Jesus saw that and was pointing directly towards Jesus' future and the death on the cross. And so those gifts are really symbolic, and I think God did that providentially to, to basically make a point of, 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 of making an emphasis about Jesus' life or a statement about Jesus' life, even as a child. So what does this mean, and how does this relate to being a good gift giver? Because that's really what it's about. And more specifically, what I want to get to is, is really evangelism. So how does evangelism tie into Herod and baby Jesus and, 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 the, uh, and the nativity, you know, nativity set and all the good gifts and all that sort of thing? So the question is, so what, right? Well, I want to offer three thoughts here. First, the Magi, wanting to honor and worship the Messiah, came with gifts that represented the best gifts humans know how to give. However, second, in reality... Though the incar- um, in reality, however, the, through the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that meaning God with us, or Emmanuel, God taking on flesh, God was in fact giving the best gift that humanity has ever received. And so third, in response to the, this gift that God has given us, um, through Christ's life and death on the cross, Christians should respond in sharing the Christmas story and the gospel message. And I have a lot to say about the, the last thought, and, and so, sorry, I'm going to have a hobby horse of sorts, but I'm pretty passionate about it, so bear with me. On the first thought, here, here, here it goes. The Magi were giving Christ some of the most valuable um, gifts at that time that were known. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh were very, very expensive gifts. The gifts that the Magi laid before Jesus were basically offerings um, of worship to God. Christ. I really think that the Magi, though pagan, um, many, many think they were, they were monotheists. I really do believe that they knew that they were worshiping God and that the significance of, of Jesus Christ. And, and, um, and that's my own thought. And so when they offer these gifts, I think they, they really are worshiping God through it. And so we lay our gifts and we try our best attempt, uh, attempts through our service and our time and our money to, to um, use our gifts and our funds to worship God and, and, and really... In reality, sometimes we get that kind of feeling like, man, we're giving God a really good gift. Like, you know, yesterday it was cold outside and Grace and I ran the bell and, and we gave God, you know, a good gift in the time so that he can provide. But in reality, God doesn't need our time. He didn't need those gifts. He didn't need the gold. He didn't need the frankincense and myrrh um, because he's sustainable by himself. And so in our best attempts to worship him, we always end up finding out that in reality, God is giving us 
great, great gifts. So the, the wise men thinking this, they, they give these gifts in return. God is actually giving them the best gift that humanity has ever seen and has ever had a chance to accept. See, in, in, in Jesus Christ, the incarnation, Jesus taking on flesh, we have, we have this, this sense that God has taken on, on flesh. And so now um, us as Christians and us as people no longer have an excuse because a lot of times, and you'll hear this from people, they'll say, God, what you're doing, and they're in a, they're in a pickle or they're in a bind or something's happened. They say, God, it's not fair. You don't understand. I'm angry. I'm upset. I'm ticked because what, you, you're up in heaven. You, don't, you have no way of relating to how I feel right now. And God says, you're completely wrong. Because I've offered my son, Jesus Christ, in flesh and allowed him to, to live a life in which he experienced every possible feeling, every possible emotion to the fullness. God has experienced that. So it leaves us no, ex- no excuse. And there's so many other religions where these gods, they have these deities that are just these far off beings that really can't relate to humanity in any way. And so they're just kind of left as helpless. But through Christ, the incarnation of Christ, we finally have that bridge that's been linked between God and us through Christ that now we can relate to him because in his ministry, he experienced every possible feeling. He experienced sadness and anger and joy and you name it. And not only that, Christ was the perfect embodiment of what being human is all about. He was sinless and he was perfect in every way. And in every way, he was what Adam was not, our first father. And so so now we have this, this person who has lived this life and has created this, this bridge that was there for the longest time in the Old Testament. And because of sin and because of, of the fall, there was a separation that has now been paved. So now that we can have this relationship with Christ. Yeah, that's what I basically all I had to say about that, I think. So that we have, we have in reality that Christ has given us, or God is giving us the best possible gift through Jesus Christ. And then so finally, and my third point is this, and this is where I want to spend some time, is that because God has offered everything in His Son and, and the life that He lived and His atoning death on the cross, that now we are supposed to take that gift and receive it and then pass it on to other people. Meaning we are to share the gospel. If it really is the gift that we claim it to be, and it's, an op- and it's an invitation, an open invitation to everyone else, then we are to be his conduits in which that gift is passed on. Last Sunday, I alluded to that I was at, um, we were at, the, well, actually the Billings were at our apartment, and we were watching, uh, we had dinner, we watched Charlie Brown Christmas. And we were commenting on the fact, and, and I love the Charlie Brown Christmas, I own it. Um, I'll probably watch it, it's going to be on ABC, I think Tuesday, I'll probably watch it again. I love it. But it really, Charlie Brown kind of sometimes... He resonates with me because that's my sentiment about Christmas. And, he, and if you know, if you've watched it, it's all about Charlie Brown really trying to figure out what the true meaning of Christmas is. And he's frustrated because he sees all the materialism and the consumerism and, and kind of what Christmas shouldn't be. And he, at the very end or close to the end, he becomes exasperated. And he says, does anybody know what Christmas is about? And Linus gets up there and He's, you know, the spotlight comes on. He's like, sure, Charlie Brown. And he has his little blanket in hand. I just love it. I get, I get goosebumps just talking about it. I'm sorry. I'm cheesy like that. I love it. But he gets up and he, and he shares the, the, the nativity story, the birth narrative, and Luke. And he says, that's what Christmas is about. And what, the reason why I bring this up is because uh, Dan and I and Rosa and Grace were kind of taken back by the fact that Charles Schultz was so 
unapologetic about presenting the gospel story to millions of people. The, the uh, Charlie Brown Christmas is actually considered the uh, most popular holiday special that has ever been on TV at, to, this, to this date. But yet it's so unapologetically Christian. It's so unapologetically evangel- evangelistic in, in a certain point or at the, at the very end. And what I want to say is this. The Christmas season is, is basically a Christian's or God's fall or autumn. This is what I'm trying to say. It's our harvest time. During this season, more people are more willing to hear the gospel message than any other time of the year. There's something about the holidays that people get excited about. They want to they be compelled to not only give more, but they, wanna, they, want, they have that sense of longing to want to connect with God and with others. And so they're completely open to hearing the gospel message. And what I mean, and, you, and we see it usually here at church and other churches, attendance goes up. We'll see a little bit of a spike in church attendance during the Christmas season here, and other churches see the same thing. And on Christmas Day, every, I mean, there's basically two holidays that a lot of people go to, to the church. It's Christmas and Easter, right? And these are great times to share the gospel message because people, one, they think they should be going to church on those days, and two, are more receptive to hearing the gospel message during those times. They want to feel connected. They want to feel belonging and not only that, people give more. During, if you look at our, our budget sheets month by month, usually, typically, Bob can vouch for this, December, starting November and December are usually really good financial times for our church and most churches. That's when there's the most amount of giving. People, for whatever reason, and I think it's just that God-shaped hole that they have that only Christ can fill, but they just want to feel connected. They want to be given hope. They want to feel. They want to uh, be connected to the, to the gospel message. Yet so many people are, are separated from it. And this is the time of the year when we can really seize the day, when we can really pounce on the ability to share the gospel. And when I say that, I want us. I want you to know: don't be ashamed or don't be scared to share it. Because because here's the deal: I used to be the kind of Christian that I took this approach. I'll, I'll befriend somebody, you know, somebody I work with or whatever. I'll kind of maybe allude to uh, the fact that I'm a Christian. Like at one point I might have a Christian song on, right? And then right when they walk in, you know, and they're going to hear it, I turn it down real quick because I don't want to be in their face with my faith. You know, so I turn the Christian music down. Go figure. And I won't tell them much about God, God you know, and I'll, I'll basically wait until the opportune moment, which is maybe I'll say one brief thing about me being a Christian and then I'll be done with it. And I felt like I've effectively evangelized to him, right? I don't know if anybody else has felt like this, but I know with certain friends, this is exactly where they're at. And I just say this because, guys, this is the time of the year when we can just be unapologetic about sharing the gospel message with people because people are, are so open to hearing the gospel story. You have friends and family and coworkers that will absolutely be willing to hear the gospel story around this time of the year. And what I, what I want to make the connection is this. God has given us the greatest gift in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It is the greatest gift that humanity has ever, ever had. And yet, when we, we receive as Christians, when we receive the gift, we're kind of like this. And we don't have open arms. We're kind of like, sorry for lack of a better word, we're kind of like toddlers, spiritual toddlers that aren't willing to share the toy or the gift. And that's wrong. That's completely wrong. Because our arms need to be open as we have received the gift of Christ and salvation and we've received that and our lives have been transformed. We are, to, we are to extend that to other people through sharing the gospel message, sharing the Christmas story. 
So even right now, I want you to think about people that are in your lives that you could be sharing the story with. Because I guarantee you, each and every one of us has a, has a friend, has a family member, has a co-worker in which we can share this story. This is a very important thing. It's, it's, it's big. And when we don't share it, we squander opportunities and we squander the gift. Because this gift is a gift that was meant to be passed on. I asked you guys earlier at the beginning, what... Um, are you a good gift giver? And if so, what, you know, would others consider you a good gift giver? It is a Christmas season. There's a lot of shopping. You know, right now I'm, I'm thinking, you know, what is it that I can get such and such person that would really just honor and bless them? But if I haven't asked just a basic, basic essential question about them, what's, what's in reality, where are they going once they die? Or um, what's the, the state of their soul? Then really... Um, Perhaps we should be focusing more on that in some ways than worrying about all these other gifts we need to get people. You guys get what I'm saying? It, it's, it's very, um, this is a very, very opportune time to share the gospel. And, and just related, I'm going to go a little bit off the cuff of, or off the lesson that I had written. We had sat here today, if you guys weren't here, we sat and talked about the future of this church and we realized, and Mike and, and the leadership has realized, that the model of church that we have right now is not sustainable. And, and that there's two ways that we need to grow. We need to grow financially, which isn't what I'm talking about today. But we do need to grow numerically. And I, and I say this to make a point. Most of us that are in this building right now, we're probably, the majority of us that were probably in here, were probably Christians before we came to Lion and the Lamb. And it bothers me that there's seats, there's three seats right there, and there's a few seats up there, and there's a couple seats in the back that aren't filled. And I know that we're limited in the amount of people. And I don't want, as we grow and we, we seek out as a church how to, how to grow spiritually, I, I could care less if, if we're not getting all the crossover Christians that come to check out Lion and the Lamb because we're doing something cool because they really like um, the teaching or they really like the worship or they really like the youth program. I really hope, and my desire is, is that our hope and our desire will be about filling these seats with new believers, people that have been redeemed by the gospel message. I, our church is noted for being, um, doing some things really well. We live generously. People here, we live generously. We care about families and family structures, having strong families, and we're all about men leading, and we're about growing spiritually. We're, we ourselves are about growing spiritually, but what would it look like if we were about evangelizing and witnessing to the community that is Topeka, Kansas? And so we need to begin, begin thinking about, as a church body, each and every one, thinking about how that can happen. Whether it's an alpha program, whether it's outreach, whether it's, you name it. But guys, this gift that we have, that each one of you that, that knows Christ, you have a gift in your hand whether you realize it or not. And you're going to run into people at work, and you're going you're to have friends right now, and you have family members that whether or not they realize it, they really, really need to hear this story. And so I would exhort you as a body to give the greatest gift that you know how at this point of being a believer, which is the gospel message. And if you're not a believer, I would just compel you to accept Christ. Christ died for our sins because at our best, we are horrible, horrible people. At our best attempts of being good, we, we fell miserably. And so Christ had to die on the cross for us in our place so that we could have salvation. And if you don't know Christ, I would compel you to accept him. It's the best gift that I've ever received. Sorry, Dad. 
You give me a lot of good gifts, but my salvation has been the best ever. With that said, would you guys pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do really, we really do love this season, Lord. And as great as it is to get gifts from people and to, th- and to give gifts to people, Father, Lord, we understand that you have given us the best gift ever in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That his life and death on the cross was a testament to what you had planned from the beginning, Lord. And I am so thankful for the salvation you have given me and the relationship you have offered me. And Father, I just I, I pray that we wouldn't take that for granted, and that we wouldn't just sit on our thumbs or sit on our hands and, and wait to share the gospel message. Lord, that we'd be a little bit encouraged and and see a bit of urgency with sharing the message or the gospel story to so many people, Lord. This is a great season of family time and feasting and good parties and and just a rich, rich time, Father. But I pray that we would not neglect the ability to share the gospel story with those around us. Father, that is essential to our growth as a church, and that is a great indicator of our general health as a body. Father, would you just fill us with your spirit and, and encourage us to share the gospel. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for your son. And, and Lord, we just ask that you would be, in our, um, be working in our hearts now as we um, worship you. It's in Jesus' name, amen.